Every week, the Orange Fizz team breaks down the five most pressing questions about Syracuse athletics. Holy cow, what a big-time defensive play! No holds barred. I paid the fool. It's the Fizz Five. Five! Welcome one, welcome all to another edition of Fizz 5, Carter Bainbridge along with Cam Izzair here on this Monday night to go over the current top five most pressing topics in Syracuse athletics. We've got some good stuff lined up for you tonight. Cam, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, The Syracuse men's lacrosse season is over, so everyone should be elated because now everyone could look forward to football season. And and as many uh, as, you know, there might be a few people that don't think that the football team is going to have a good season. I'm not one of them. I think this team is making a bowl game. I know we could talk about that later, but that's besides the point. I'm doing well. It's somewhat nice outside and football's around the corner. Yeah, well said. The men's lacrosse season is over. Perhaps a good thing because, boy, down the stretch, they were they were tough to watch. I'll, I'll give you that. And like you said, the weather's getting pretty warm up here. At least it's getting warmer compared to what it was. So, you know, now that we've got that out of the way and now that we've established all that, let's jump right into our first topic of the day. Number one. All right, topic number one on this Fizz 5 is about men's lacrosse, but not about the team in just generally yet. We're going to go over a specific player who dropped some uh, pretty surprising news this morning. That's Tucker Dordovic, the Syracuse midfielder turned attackman who announced on this Monday morning that he was transferring or at least entering the transfer portal. But the assumption right now is that he will be going elsewhere. Dordovic this year led the Orange with 47 goals, over 50 points. So Cam, give me your thoughts on this. And, uh, you know, what, what is Syracuse losing here? I mean, I don't know what people's expectations were in terms of next year's lacrosse team. Now, I understand that with uh, a guy like Joey Spelina uh, coming to Syracuse, the number one recruit, I, I get that that would cause people to grow their excitement a little bit because of how bad this this past season's lacrosse team was. So now you got the number one recruit, or you got Jackson Burtwistle, who I think is going to be great on attack. He's been great the past few games. I think it's 12 goals in his last four games, something like that, whatever he put up against Notre Dame. That was a respectable performance. And then on top of that, you have Tyler Cordes in the midfield, as well as a few guys like Harrison Thompson and Bobby Gavin that might have some orange experience under their belt. Nick Kakamo looked great, the redshirt freshman, the Yale transfer. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the focal point is Tucker Dordovic. This is the best player on the team. Next year, the best player on the Syracuse team would have been Tucker Dordovic. I don't care if you're getting Owen Hiltz back. Dordovic would have been converted back to the midfield, which it wouldn't have mattered. He could have inverted the offense at X. He could have played attack. He, he would be a hybrid at best. He was pretty much a hybrid this season. I mean, get this, Carter. This is a guy that was three goals away from being the first Syracuse player to have 50 goals in a season since 2015. Dylan Donahue did that. So when you talk about an elite scorer and someone who can really lead this Syracuse team in his sixth year, I know it's crazy to think his sixth year, but the eligibility piles up when you have COVID and redshirt years and injuries and whatever it may be. Syracuse is losing their best player, and it's not even close. This is a guy that kickstarts the offense. He's their best goal scorer. He could have he could have led the charge with Hiltz and Spalina behind him. Even if those two had the most goals on the team, Tucker Dordovic would have made the, be- the most impact. Having no Brendan Curry or Brett Kennedy or Owen Siebold, the only hope for a leadership role was in Tucker Dordovic. And all of a sudden he's gone. I had the privilege of broadcasting that game and there was 22 seniors honored. When Tucker Dordovic walked out with the seniors, trust me, me and my broadcast partner were very confused because on the screen it said redshirt junior. So what is Tucker Dordovic doing out there? I also had the privilege of going to media ops and talking to Tucker Dordovic with three other guys or three other reporters. And they asked, Hey Tucker, what's your plan for next year? He said, I'm coming back. I have an extra year of eligibility. So not sure if he just lied to our face or if he realized that this Syracuse team has no hope in the next year. And I want a chance at a national championship. But as you can tell, I have a long rant about this because it is utterly ridiculous that Syracuse under Gary gate couldn't keep a guy like Tucker Dordovic after he had 47 goals. That's one of the most prolific goal-scoring seasons 
in Syracuse history in the past decade. He got everything he wanted. Next year would have been a breakout season for him and the team. Instead, he answers the transfer portal. I fully expect him to go to a place like Maryland or Georgetown or someone that's going to make Memorial Day weekend. All of a sudden, Syracuse drops from a possible Memorial Day weekend team all the way to a team that might not even make the NCAA tournament, in my opinion. Right. And I, I like that insight that you gave about, about broadcasting the game and going to the media ops with Dordovic. You know, this is good stuff, but there's there's a lot to this transfer. There's a lot to this decision that went down this morning. It's pretty complex, and none of it's very good for Syracuse. I'll give you that right off the rip. But I want to preface everything I want to, I'm going to say by just saying that Tucker Dordovic is totally within his right to do this, right? No matter what he said. I mean, what is he going to say with, with only with so many games left? Is he going to go out in front of everybody and say, yeah, I'm leaving. What kind of, uh, what kind of distraction would that have prevented? I'm not, I'm not calling you out for, for mentioning that either. um, Cause I don't blame him for saying all that stuff at all. Not at all. But the team is losing a tremendous amount with Tucker Dort. I mean, just, just on the stat sheet with all the goals and the points and all that. I mean, that's great, but he would have been a leader for this recruiting class coming in next year that, you know, we just did some work on. I just did some, some speaking with uh, Ty Zanders of inside lacrosse, other guys like that, who told me how good this class was, how good Spelina is, which of course we all know, but everybody else in that class going on down to Carter Kempney and Finn Thompson, Billy Dwan and the defense, even Jimmy McCool and goal best name in the class, but also a good player. <laughs> But at the same time, like you said, what does this team have now? Owen Hiltz, good player, good season last year, but he missed the entire year this year with an injury that people never really knew what it was. It was just always hurt in January, and and people kept thinking, well, he may come back. He's going to miss time, but he may come back. And then eventually you look up, the season's over. He never played. So it's going to be tough for him to come back after missing a year. And let's just hope that nobody else from Syracuse goes to the transfer portal. I mean, that's the other thing. We have to assume that Tucker Dordovic looked at what was in the cupboard for next year, looked at the team's construction, even with these good recruits coming in, which, by the way, freshmen, as good as they may be, they've also got to clash sticks with some really elite ACC talent and you know whatever other f- top five teams in the country Syracuse wants to stack on its schedule. But Tucker Dordovic took a look at that, evidently, and thought to himself that this is going to be another rebuilding year for Syracuse. As uncharacteristic as this year was for the program, and we'll get to that in a minute, he took a look at that and he's decided he didn't want to be a part of that. That is the assumption we have to make that's on the brighter side, the the darker side to this, which I don't think is accurate, but that we hope won't come true in the future, is that he comes out and he says that there were things he observed within the program that made him want to leave. You know, were there, were there clashes on the coaching staff? Were, were there losses of the locker room? Were there guys he didn't want to be around? Those are the negatives that just take down teams. There's no indication that that happened for Syracuse. But at the same time, that was the first thing I thought of when I saw this news. I didn't immediately jump to, oh, he just may, he's just seeking greener pastures for his final year of eligibility. My first thought was, is there going to be something in this article or is there going to be something that comes out about how he and Gate didn't get along? He and someone else didn't get along. He and Pat March had a falling out. I mean, I don't know. I don't think any of that stuff happened. I mean, this year's team was tame compared to last year when it comes to the controversy and the distractions. But this is a tough loss, no matter what. Um, you know, just just on the, the stat sheet and in the locker room, this is a total loss for Syracuse. Um, and you, only, you can only wish Tucker Dordovic the best at this point. Yeah, I'm not trying to, you know, drop some blasphemy on you and say that Tucker Dordovic lied to the media. He didn't, you know, perform at his highest and he chose to transfer. And no, not at all. Tucker Dordovic was the best player on the field this season, was most likely the best player on the field maybe a season ago, comparable to Stephen Rafis. Tucker Dordovic, well in his right to leave. I wish him nothing but the best. Now I'm just concerned with the intangibles, Carter. There's no lead Dodger on this team. It has to be Joey Spelina as a freshman. Owen Hilton, Jackson, Burt Whistle, if they do start, they're more stagnant shooters. 
Same with the Lucas Quinn in the midfield. Can Tyler Cordes be that guy? Can Mateo Corsi be that guy? Those are questions you have to ask yourself because you need Dodgers in the game of lacrosse. That's why Syracuse struggled so much on the offensive end. They didn't have guys that could create their own shot other than a Brendan Curry and a Tucker Dordovic. Guess what? Both of them are gone. So those are question marks going into next season. And speaking of next season, that is a perfect segue to move into topic number two. Number two. All right, second thing on our list tonight, Cam, our agenda, is uh, to go, go over this men's lacrosse team as a whole. You know, what, what we just saw, we're, we're uh, a little over 24 hours removed from the season finale. Syracuse lost to Notre Dame yesterday, 18-11, to 11, which they've made a habit of doing to the Fighting Irish, by the way, for wh- whatever reason, whether it be the Kavanaugh brothers or whatever else you want to put on that. But the numbers do not lie at the end of this season. Four and 10 record. The worst season for Syracuse men's lacrosse since 2007, just by a losing season. But it's the first double-digit loss season for the program in 107 years. They weren't this bad coming back from two world wars. And now they lose 10 games. Um, and there's a lot of different reasons why this happened, Cam, but give me your just initial thoughts on what happened to this team. I mean, the Notre Dame game encapsulated every issue with this Syracuse team. Did they keep it close at times? Yes, it was 13-9 at one point. All of a sudden, a 2-0 spurt almost looks like it might be 3-0-4-0, and Syracuse is coming back at home. This is a Syracuse team that couldn't finish down the stretch, and it ultimately led to the the most disappointing season in Syracuse men's lacrosse history. I mean, when you think about it, going into that Notre Dame game, Syracuse should have been eight and five. You shouldn't lose to UAlbany. You darn sure shouldn't have lost to UAlbany. (laughs) You hit eight pipes against Hopkins. You only put up seven goals when the defense is phenomenal. And so is the goaltending. On top of that, you're up on Cornell, should have won that game at home. You're leading North Carolina. You clear the ball all of a sudden you might be inching closer and closer to tournament eligibility. It's a team that should have ended the year eight and six, but you also have to realize the ACC might only be a one or two bid league. I think it'll be a two bid league, which is shocking because the ACC is perennially perennially known for its ability to get three, four, five teams in, usually four or five. And now that's the Ivy League's turn after coming back from a season in which they didn't play due to COVID-19. So what I, what I saw from Syracuse was just constant ineptitude down the stretch and the constant showing of, can we finish games? No. Can we even start off games? No. Those were the questions and, and, the, uh, and the inability to answer those questions at the beginning of the season, the middle of the season, and the end of the season. You talk about making adjustments, Syracuse never did it, right? It was all Tucker Dordovic and Brendan Curry. Oh, Jackson Burtwistle's phenomenal. Uh, why couldn't have that been the case in the early portions of the season? Well, what is, what is Gary Gayton, Pat March doing throwing out Mikey Berkman when Jackson Burtwistle looks like the second coming of Jesus Christ? I mean, it's ridiculous to me how a 4-10 and ten team was unable to make adjustments down the stretch, even when they started the season 4-4. Four and four. Well, they had a big win over Duke. That was it. Their strength of schedule, their RPI was extremely high. I totally understand that. But this is a team that should have finished the year eight and six. And maybe it could have been better if they picked up some momentum with wins. So all I have to say about this team is goalkeeping was bad. Bobby Gavin, Harrison Thompson ranked bottom in the country in save percentage. The defense was okay at times, but the struggle was you're relying on a redshirt freshman and Nick Kakamo to be your best defender because Grant Murphy isn't having his best season in his final year. The midfield was okay, but without Tucker Dordovic, all of a sudden you're throwing out a few freshmen and sophomores and they don't look as good as a Tucker Dordovic would have been. And then no Owen Hiltz killed them. So uh, this is a season you throw in the trash. Uh, this is the first year under Gary Gate, under Dave Petromala. And this these aren't their guys. This isn't their recruiting class. So I'm willing to say, find a trash can next to you. Take this four and 10 season, crumple it up, crumple it up again, set it on fire throw it in the trash you you, you don't even look at the film with this don't even look at the film go into next season and say hey new outlook that's the only way that you can portray this season I think that's what they have to do and and when you look back I don't particularly like the exercise of saying oh they should be this record they could have been this record I, I see that a lot I mean you're not alone in that exercise at all but 
at the same time, when you look at what they did in the conference and you look at the numbers for some of these players, they had broad deficiencies in, in pretty much every aspect of the game. The roster was, was poorly constructed. I mean, you talk about Kakemo and the rest of these guys who it just shouldn't be in these positions. I mean, Jackson Burt whistle for as well as he played, you know, what kind of a story is that where they just stumble across him uh, but they weren't playing him right away. I mean, I think you hit that right on the head, and that's a little bit of an indictment of the coaching staff, who I don't really want to bash because it's their first year together. But at the same time, when you see a team that ends the year on a six-game losing streak and they look bad in most of those games, you have to wonder, is the stuff that they're saying about the effort of this team and the heart of this team, is that legitimate? Or are you just saying stuff? Because I didn't see a lot of effort and heart from this team down the stretch, to be quite honest with you. Not not in some specific games. Certainly didn't see a lot of clutch play. Didn't see readiness in some games. You can blame it, the weird pipe stuff and the Johns Hopkins. That's an anomaly. I mean, that's just a that's a historical artifact for uh, interest, uh, interest in the bizarre to look at that game. But some of these other performances, Syracuse had a losing record because they deserved it. They, they weren't necessarily good at any particular thing. They had the conference's worst defense by a long shot in scoring just goals wise. Um, the worst save percentage by a mile. You talked about Gavin and Thompson, nearly a full 10th difference between Syracuse and the, the next worst team in the conference. I know the ACC is a steep grade, but these are the teams Syracuse has to play every year. And then on the, uh, on the offensive side, you talk about Dordovic, and then Brendan Curry, you know, throw Owen Seabold in that mix too. None of the, and Tordovic had a really good season. Curry was pretty good. And then Seabold, maybe not the guy you want to rely on, but those are the three Syracuse is relying on. All three of those guys had a lot of turnovers. Maybe if you watch the games, you think, gosh, these guys are turning it over a lot. But you look at this, the statue at the end of the year, Curry has 21 to lead the team. Dordovic has 20. And then Seabold has 19. 20 turnovers in a year is bad for, for just to have one player who does it. Seabold's right there. And then you have your top two scorers who do it. So there's clearly something wrong there. Guys are scoring goals, but at the same time, they can't hang on to the ball. They're not being careful with it. And they just look out of sync. So at the end of the day, this team had problems, just an array of them. And I think that they played like their record, to be quite honest with you, four and 10. I didn't expect them to win their last three games, not against ranked teams. Yeah, they choked the game against North Carolina. That was a little unfortunate, but they could have been worse. I mean, if they don't upset Duke, this is a really bad team. And at the same time, you know, just to wrap up everything I'm saying, I think that you had it right where, you know, you got to watch the film of this year, but at the same time, Tell your players, you know what, guys, you know, we've been down, but we can't go anywhere but up now. And they're going to have some players to do it with next year that we've already gone over. Minus Tucker Dordovic, but you're getting some pretty hot freshmen in here, uh, hopefully to play well in 2023 and beyond. Carter, can we? Can I quickly shout out uh, fellow Orange Fizz staffer John Eads for predicting five and nine, and this team went four and ten. So if your expectations were high for this team at all, please go check out all of John Eads' articles or just all of our lacrosse articles on orangefizz.net because it shows why this team went four and ten and how many of us predicted this team wouldn't be much better. So that too. Yeah, definitely. Check out John's stuff. Uh, that guy certainly knows ball with his cross <laughs> film room study. And I think he came close on the football record predictions as well back in the fall. So he may have a little bit of a knack for that. Uh, but anyways, now that we've we've gone over the men's lacrosse stuff, let's stick with the sport, but let's switch it over to another program at SU, slightly more successful for topic number three. Number three. All right, our third order of business for the day, Syracuse women's lacrosse, although not on a positive note, just flamed out of the ACC tournament on Friday in the first round in an upset defeat to number 16, Virginia, 18-14. to 14. SU got off to an okay start in that game, but just got bodied over the final three quarters, outscored 13-8 to eight in the final three periods. Cam, uh, what, what were your thoughts on this one as it unfolded? 
So I was down in Charlottesville for the first Virginia game, and that one was a bit uh, untraditional, untraditional, you could say, because it wasn't at the normal field. There was no media timeouts. It was flurrying snow. They just wanted to get that game over with because of the uh, the awful conditions. So you could say that was a bit of an anomaly for Virginia, but this is a Virginia team that's not even top 15 in the country. And Syracuse has dealt with top five team in the top five teams in the country with ease, right? So you go up against Virginia. It's not like Ashley Vernon is that strong in net. So it was a bit concerning because after Syracuse really struggled with Florida, Sarah Resnick during the season, struggled with Taylor Moreno, all of these players to Warraton watch listers. So you got to realize that these are players that have a whole lot of prowess in net and a big reason why Syracuse had lost to them is because they have that prowess in net. Ashley Vernon gave up 14 goals, only made five saves. The fact that Syracuse only had 19 shots on goal is extremely concerning, extremely against Virginia. I think that's utterly ridiculous on top of the fact that this is a Syracuse team that ranks seventh in the nation in assists per game. And out of the 14 goals, they eight of them were unassisted. That can't happen. And, and Kayla Trainer's philosophy has almost evolved over time with all these injuries uh, that have occurred where Megan Tyrell, even a Megan Carney, Emily Harris, Chuck, especially, but really, if you want to hone in on one player, Megan Tyrell, who finished with four goals, she played well, that Kayla Trainer would clear her out on one side. It's almost become the let's shift away from the three-woman weave at times and we'll set up our own one-on-one -on -one play, maybe draws a slide, you get it over to a player who can rip a shot. Unfortunately, when you're not doing well at the draw control circle, and this is no knock on Caitlin Mashevsky, she's been good as of late, but as Virginia gains a little bit more momentum and they can stop those one-on-one -on -one plays, all of a sudden Syracuse finds themselves in the gutter, right? Like you have to realize. This team is built off of assists leading to goals, moving the ball around the perimeter. When you clear out one side, that's not just supposed to be just go attack your assignment because what I think Syracuse had 13 turnovers, 14 turnovers. Big reason why if you're going one on one and you drop the ball or a double comes and you don't get rid of it in time, you kind of trap yourself near the crease. All of a sudden, if Ashley Vernon steps up, it's a three on one, right? With Megan Tyrell kind of caught up in a bread basket. That's just not going to lead to a goal. It's not going to lead to a good possession. And when Virginia finally found its stride in that third quarter, it was 11-10 SU. And all of a sudden, 8-3 run ended the game for Virginia or ended the game for SU and in favor of Virginia. The, the unassisted aspect of that game really concerned me because this is a team that's fighting for Memorial Day weekend. And after that performance, Carter, I'll be completely honest with you. I don't think this team is worthy of going to Memorial Day weekend. On top of the fact that the fouls, the, the defense has been playing so poorly in, in just staying disciplined. Eight free position shots, three of which went to Ashlyn McGovern, the best player or one of the best players on this team. Rachel Clark, of course, the best. She had six goals on eight shots, but three of three from the free position because Syracuse can't stay disciplined. Boston College ruined Syracuse, especially Charlotte North, on shooting space violations. And Syracuse, once again, what plagued them? It was the turnovers and it was giving up free position shots. That puts Kimber Howard in an awful position. So, Overall, what I took from this game is that Syracuse is not a Memorial Day weekend team, which is so unfortunate because toward the end of the season, two goal losses to Boston College in North Carolina, I had a strong feeling that this team could contend with BC and UNC. I had this team making the ACC tournament final, and it's ridiculous that Boston College can whoop up on Virginia 20 to 12 the next game, but Syracuse can't even put up 15 goals in the quarterfinals. So what this game told me is that the best team on campus is going to bow out early in the tournament. Yeah, and I appreciate you going into more of the technical stuff there because you have seen more of this team in person than I have. That's, that's for certain. But what it looked like to me at the time was that they picked a miserable time to play their worst lacrosse of the year. And I think the only other comparable game where they looked this bad this year is actually the loss that I think is the most similar, and that's the Florida loss. You drop the name Sarah Resnick in there. And we talked about that game on a, on a Fizz 5 not that long ago. Sarah Resnick, the Florida goalkeeper in that game, in that one where the Gators beat the Orange 14-10 to 10 over spring break, 
Uh, Resnick made 11 saves, saved 10. Meanwhile, Syracuse fell victim to some of the same stuff we've, we've talked about, offensive inefficiency, subpar goalkeeping, things like that. I thought that this loss was was right there. It was almost like the same game happened again, except it was to a Virginia team that they had already beaten pretty comfortably. Um, you know, I think we saw a couple things in this. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, like you said, Cam, the turnovers for Syracuse, big problem. And you had the number right there. It was 14 for SU. But then it's the players who had those turnovers that, that were the, the main issue. I mean, Megan Carney, four points, three turnovers. She's got to be better than that in, in a game of that caliber. You just can't have almost as many turnovers as points in a game if you're one of the team's leading scorers. And again, I think there might just be some pressing on that offensive side right now. Without Emma Tyrell, we talked about it at the time after Tyrell went down that this team just might not have the offensive horses to do it because they're going to have to lean on other players for point production. I just don't think they have it. I mean, you look at the team, they're composed of, you know, the Jenny Markies and the Sam Swartz of this team. I'm just not sure that they have it, you know, the ability or the the wherewithal to to step up and, and really get those kind of gritty points against these really good teams, your BCs, your UNCs, you know, the teams that they're going to have to play in the NCAA tournament because Syracuse is going to make it. They're not just going to flame out and miss it because they dropped a dud in the opener of the ACC tournament, but they've got to play better than that. And I think one thing, Cam, that we have to address, and I don't want to just pick on a particular player, but you have to mention it uh, if if we're, we're going to talk about women's lacrosse. Can't let her escape. It's Kimber Hauer in that Virginia game. One of the worst performances that you could find in in women's lacrosse goaltending this year. I mean, it's it's a pretty bold statement, but 14 goals allowed one save. The fourth time this year that Howard has finished a game with only one save and her shortest outing since the Florida game, which was alarmingly similar for her, where she was replaced in goal and just had a, a dreadful day. So some of the same old blemishes for Syracuse coming back up they looked like they did a month and a half ago against Florida and just at a very awful time. I'm not sure that this team can make it to Memorial Day weekend either. I also don't think they're just going to lay a complete egg in the NCAA tournament opener like they just did against Virginia. I think Kayla Trainer is probably going to have a better handle on things after watching a performance like that. But certainly discouraging and a little bit worrying because there's some things in there that are just a little bit intangible. I think for this team, it might just be more on the mental side right now, pressing to replace Tyrell. Got to be better in front of a, a goal-keeping situation you know is really rough. And just some bad lacrosse played on uh, on Friday. They're just going to have to uh, put their heads down and advance onto the NCAA tournament here in about a week and a half's time. No question about it. And when I say bow out of the NCAA tournament, a reminder that – Syracuse is going to win in the first round. They'll play a, a, a bummy team and then go into the next round and play a more respectable team. And, and why I'm concerned is I don't know how far Syracuse is going to drop down, right? They were put in a position where you got most likely if Boston college doesn't beat North Carolina in the ACC tournament final. You have Boston college come the semifinal. And then you have to, you face, you most likely face North Carolina in the final. You want to avoid North Carolina uh, above all, even though North Carolina only squeaked out a, a one goal win against Notre Dame in the ACC semifinal. You want to avoid them at all costs. The question is, Syracuse is going to win in round one. Can they win in round two against a Virginia team, right, against Notre Dame? Could it be a Northwestern who they lost to earlier in the season? I don't know. That, that's the question I have for them. Well, that just about wraps up the lacrosse for us. Of course, the NCAA tournament for both the men's that Syracuse is not participating in and the women's starting later this month. So now let's transition to one of Syracuse's main sports and one that we're going to keep, be keeping an eye on all summer long. Number four. All right, our fourth order of business, Cam, today is to talk a little Syracuse football, which of course is months away. The season opener in September, I believe September 3rd against Louisville. 
but as of right now, Dino Babers' team is post-spring games and getting into the training camp side of things. But we have an idea now, roughly, of what this roster is going to look like. Syracuse has had some transfers come in. They have their recruiting class set up. And they returned plenty of guys from last year. Of course, not in every position group. But one thing that we had written about on the Fizz earlier this week with the NFL draft that just happened last Thursday was wondering about when Syracuse was going to get another player taken in the NFL draft because they went over this year. No player selected, not just in the first round, but then in the entire seven round draft. Little unfortunate, little, little bit of a bad optic for Syracuse's program. But Cam, I'm wondering this. Does Syracuse have a potential first round pick or any draft picks on its roster right now? Well, first off, I will say a whole lot of camp visits. Whole, whole lot. I think, uh, is it Kingsley Jonathan? That's heading to who someone's going to Buffalo. I've got a I, list right here for you. If you'd like me please, to go over it, please read them. Wait, can for I anybody? guess quick, quick guess. Right. I know that, uh, I know that Josh black got a camp visit to new Orleans. I'm fairly sure. No, I owe for one. <sighs> I, Oh, this is tough. This, this, it's really getting to me right now. Was it Green Bay that he got the camp visit to? He got invited to Chicago Bears camp. Oh, I thought. I think he also got invited to another camp, but beside the point. Is it Kingsley Jonathan going to Buffalo? I don't think it is. It's someone it is. else. Going. Oh, it that is. is okay. right. Okay, you, you read the rest. And then the other one was McKinley Williams, a undrafted free agent deal with the Colts. Right, joining, um, uh, what's his name on the Colts? The other Syracuse guy. That is completely... I cannot even think about it right now. Um, it's going to, it's going to kill me Carter. And I'm probably going to remember it during our fifth topic. So I'll just talk about the fourth one. Cause we're on it right now. It's there. Yeah. Franklin. There we go. Damn. I'm glad you told me. So yeah. Number four, right. Uh, I think this is a, this is one that everyone has to hone in on knowing lacrosse season is over. The answer is they have a draft pick on the roster. Is it first round? I don't know because I'm not 1000% sure that who else is in his position group come next season, uh, come the, the, the draft. I mean, is it Mikel, Mike? At this point, he has two names. I'm going to go with Mikel Jones. And one thing about Mikel Jones is he could have went to the draft this past year and probably landed in the sixth or the seventh round, maybe fifth round at the highest. Very smart that he came back. Really, really smart on his part. Whoever he went to, they made the right decision. So he comes back for his senior year. Uh, a guy that was first team all ACC last year, 110 tackles, 13 tackles for loss. And, and back in 2020, an all ACC honorable mention. And, and a guy that led the conference in interceptions with four. So he is not just a, a threat uh, on, the, on the ground, but he's also a threat in the air on the defensive side. And he's a player that I really think could enhance a lot of NFL teams. Now, with that said, do I think he's first round material? No. Could he prove himself this year and get in the first round? I don't think so. I think he's more of a stereotypical, or as you could say, prototypical two, three, four type of guy. I think his ceiling is the late second round, but I do think Mikel Jones is good enough to get drafted. And I think a lot of teams will want his skill set in either a, I know that he's a linebacker, but he's a, I think he's a guy that could easily drop back. He could, he could either be uh, a linebacker that's known more for his blitz packages or known for dropping back in coverage, or he can be a dual threat. There's a lot of good linebackers in the NFL, and I think that he could kind of sit behind a few of the NFL greats and kind of learn from them. But I think a team will draft him. My guess is he has a pretty good season this year, and he goes fourth round. So give me Mikel Jones. Okay. I think that's, that's a good pick. I think that's, that's the guy I would have gone with on the defensive side as well. I'll give you one. You know, I, I thought about this a little bit and I, I will say the name because I think it's the one that people come up with first and that's Sean Tucker on the offensive side of the ball. I think that he has the potential to go pro, not as a first rounder because first round running backs are a dying breed, but I mean, just look at a player who he was comparable with this year. For example, uh, Kenneth Walker out of Michigan State, their numbers pretty similar during the regular season. We saw comparisons between those two. We even saw some you know, half serious Heisman stuff about both of them during the year. 
Kenneth Walker last year, 263 carries over 1600 yards for Michigan state, 18 touchdowns. I think he just barely outpaced Sean Tucker in a couple of those categories. Of course, I don't think Tucker scored as many times as Walker did, but oh, the team wasn't as good. Uh, but at the same time with all those numbers, Kenneth Walker 40 years ago might've been taken in the top 10, but these days he was the second running back selected in the draft. He went 41st overall to Seattle. First running back in the draft was Brees Hall, went to the Jets five picks earlier from Iowa State. So running backs of Tucker's caliber are, are draft commodities. They, they get taken. But the thing is, we won't know if Tucker can actually do it for probably at least one more year. Because not only does he have to play comparably to how he did last year, but he also can't get hurt. And that's the big thing with running backs is that they take just about, you know, more punishment than any other position on the football field. And health is always the, the major, major issue there. I mean, think of Todd Gurley, who was first round running back and what kind of shape he's in now, um, probably in his early thirties. So Sean Tucker, I think can do it. If you just watched him last year and you thought, man, this guy is, this guy is an NFL talent. I mean, for me, the comparison that I made in my head, it made it a little bit more enjoyable to watch him was that I kept wanting to make a joke on Fizz at some point about how Sean Tucker was the best running back in Western and upstate New York to ever wear number 34, keeping Thurman Thomas in mind with the bills, because he reminded me of Thurman Thomas Wow! in terms of stature, in terms of what he would do with the football, not only catching it, which I know he didn't do all that often, but just the acceleration and, and the running style. So, you know, comparing a second year college player to a pro football hall of famer, maybe a little bit hyperbolic, but, you know, considering the geography and considering what kind of season he put up, that was an interesting thing for me to think about. I don't know if any bills fans who are Syracuse fans ever thought that to themselves either, but for me, it's Sean Tucker, not, um, you know, not in the first round because I don't think teams take running backs in the first round anymore, but I think he'll be drafted if he plays similarly to how he did last year and he stays healthy. I just don't think there's very much question about it. I love that pick because I didn't think about Sean Tucker because he's still a freshman and he'll be a sophomore, but he'll, will, he will be a third year sophomore. So you have to take that into account, obviously, that you got to play the three years before you're eligible. So that's one thing that I didn't take into account. But yeah, I, I like that Sean Tucker pick. I don't know. I have a feeling Sean Tucker is a college guy, like a guy that wants to graduate. I don't know. Maybe that's just how, how I pinpoint it. Um, it's also interesting with, with NIL. You wonder if, and I know that we'll talk about that later, but you wonder if, uh, you know, the idea of the growing amount of money in the college game and getting your degree in a couple of years and hiring your draft stock is uh, appealing to a guy like Sean Tucker enough that he halts his NFL career to stay in college. It's, it's certainly a possibility. You make some, some really good points there, especially, you know, guys can earn money now. It's not quite as uh, not quite as desperate a situation where you try to make the leap to the pros to just try to get to your feet income wise, but that fits in so well with our last topic of the day, Cam, you, you teed it up for me. So let's move on to topic number five, number five. All right, our last topic of this Fizz 5, and it is a doozy. It's our hot-button topic of the day, and that is to discuss, Cam, whether or not Syracuse Athletics has an NIL problem. What I mean by that is taking into account the recent news that Miami basketball star Isaiah Wong, and I use the word ransom loosely here, but essentially holding Miami to that with his uh, demand, quote unquote, to basically get a better NIL deal down at the U or that he would transfer. So there's increasing amounts of leverage here for players, college players who were allowed to capitalize off name image likeness, which of course is a very new thing. But then you look at what Syracuse is doing. And that the first thing that obviously comes to mind, and Brent Axe wrote a very good article about this on Syracuse.com, but it got me thinking a little bit about what Syracuse is doing for its NIL stuff, for its athletes. 
what I found is that SU does not have what's called an NIL collective. So those are essentially organized groups of fans who are pooling money together to try to maximize NIL chances for their favorite schools, their favorite players. You know, they're trying to take a grassroots type of approach to it. But it has, I think at this point, a little bit of questionable legality to it. So, Cam, number one, does Syracuse have an NIL problem? Number two, should they have an NIL collective? Because Syracuse at this point does not have one of those. I will preface it with this. I think somewhere Tucker Dordovic, and don't quote me on this, said something of the sort of he's made like under five grand and he's the best player on the Syracuse men's lacrosse team. It probably has nothing to do with his choice to enter the transfer portal, but it goes back to the idea that unless you're Buddy Bayheim and you got your three wishes cereal all over Wegmans or your Beacon Skiff deal, what is there in Syracuse, right? You look around the country, and I just don't think that there there's enough to take advantage of and it's no knock on central new york you have destiny usa that's the sixth biggest mall in america like that's that's wild there's so many places that can sponsor uh athletes and, and it has it has led to sponsorships but the biggest thing is it's a new system do i think that syracuse has an nil problem do you think syracuse is still a blue blood like I think that the questions pile on and on about where is Syracuse athletics at? I don't think it's at the highest point, but you have to realize Syracuse is Syracuse University. Or you know Syracuse by knowing Syracuse University. When I first came to Syracuse, I was shocked people lived in Syracuse, New York. I thought it was just the university. And of course, now I, I come to Syracuse and I, I realize that it's more than just the university. You got a whole town and city around it. But you have to understand that the, the program is in a dire state right now with how good or lack thereof uh, of talent on these teams. And when it comes to talent, if you look at it, I mean, how much are you paying a Garrett Trader? Right? The only player that I would say, hey, if I was a company, I want this player to impact or, or to, you know, to be the face of my uh, company and, and I will pay them. As a student athlete, it would be Buddy Beheim and Sean Tucker. Those are, and if you look at women's and men's lacrosse, as much as you want to look at lacrosse, people have to realize lacrosse ain't that big. There's five teams in the ACC. Lacrosse is not that big. So you look toward the revenue sports, and I know men's lacrosse is one of them, but you lean toward football and basketball. I'm sorry. If, if Tyus Battle and, and those guys, Frank Howard, and when, you know, those guys were Tyler Ennis, Michael Carter-Williams, if they were still at Syracuse, yeah, you want those guys as a part of an NIL deal. Do you want Barama Sidibe a part of your NIL deal? No, you don't. And it's no knock on Sidibe, but if you're a company, you're going to go for the biggest and best. That's why Buddy Beheim has about 35 NIL deals. And unfortunately for a guy like Cole Swider that was here for a year, He's not really going to pick up any. So I think it's half on Syracuse University and the athletic department and where it stands right now and half on the fact that the athletics are just not as good as you'd expect. There's a big reason why a, a team like Miami, a guy like Isaiah Wong, who takes his team all the way, what was it? Did they make the Elite Eight this year? Why he's demanding a better NIL, uh, uh, just, just more of a NIL coverage. Like when you're in Syracuse, who's there to sponsor you and who do you have to sponsor? I just think it's half on the athletic department and half on the fact that there's just not a lot of talent in central New York right now. And to answer your second question, do I think that the Syracuse should have an NIL collective? Yeah, every school should. The, the, the NCAA is saying, guess what? Your players can make money. They're going to want to come to your school if they can make more money. If you establish an NIL collective, they're going to make more money which means more talented players are coming to your school. Why wouldn't you establish an NIL collective? 1,000%. But I think that the schools that established are few and far between, and it'll take a school like Syracuse that is so set in their ways, and they're still living in you know, 30, 40 years ago, that it's going to take them about 5, 10 years to realize that. All right. So <clears throat> definitely some good stuff there. And I will give you my answer. And there's a little bit more to this question as, as we finish up on Fizz 5. And I want to preface what I'm saying with uh, the statement that I do not have an inherent problem with NIL earnings for players. 
Um, you know, it's not like I resent it or anything. I will say, Cam, that I think Syracuse does have a little bit of a natural disadvantage because, like you said, Syracuse, I know natives, locals may not really realize it, but I'm from Tennessee. When I told people I was coming up to Syracuse, no, people did not know where that was. And when I told them New York, they said, oh, you'll be able to go to New York City. Yeah, right, buddy. I'll go to New York City. I'll drive for six hours, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm hanging up here, like you said, with Beacon Skiff and you know, the Orchard <laughs> and, and whatever else. No MSG. No the, MSG. Yes, exactly. No MSG. I'm not hanging with Derek Jeter. There's nothing, nothing, <laughs> nothing going on in New York City. But here's the thing. Syracuse as a city, it does have things to offer, but they are not on par with not a place like New York City, but like another college town that may just have a little bit more to it. I don't think Syracuse is in the worst shape in the world because I don't know what Bill Self is telling kids when they come down to Kansas. Like, yeah, come down to Lawrence. You'll get a Menards NIL deal. Save big money at Menards. You get 25 bucks a pop and a bar of dial. How about that? So I think <laughs> I think that there's <laughs> there's worse situations that other schools are in. Syracuse has a little bit of a disadvantage. And like you said, it's because the athletic programs simultaneously with a town that may have a little bit less to offer than some other places, such as in the ACC, better programs. Some of that comes back down to talent. Syracuse's programs are just not doing that well right now. Syracuse football has been in pretty much a coma since Paul Pasqualoni left, save for 2018, where they won the Camping World Bowl with Dino Babers. And then men's basketball right now is on a little bit of a come down. They don't have Tyler Ennis. They don't have those guys anymore that they relied on for so many years. Question is, can Jim Beheim or whoever comes after him in the quote-unquote succession plan can lift them out? But I think Syracuse, with better teams, can present better NIL deals because it's better exposure to businesses who will want to do things like that with them. But on the flip side here, we talk about the NIL collective thing, and I have a differing opinion to you about this. So one of the things that John Wildhack, the Syracuse athletic director has had to talk about is the differences for Syracuse NIL deals as they compare to other programs in the ACC. So University of Miami quarterback, Tyler Van Dyke, just got a new BMW through NIL, got a car. So did Boston College wideout Zay Flowers, who's a good player. We've seen him play. Meanwhile, SU's marquee player, perhaps a bigger player to Syracuse football than either one of those guys, Sean Tucker. And I don't mean to diss Destiny or any of these places, AMC, but Sean Tucker is now a partner with the 110 Grill in Destiny Mall. Shout out. There's no ignition key in the 110 Grill, <laughs> and it's not worth as much as a BMW. I'm telling you that it, right now, Cam. You don't have to pay any uh, any car insurance or anything. That's a factual statement. You do not have to pay car insurance on an NIL deal from a, uh, a restaurant inside a mall. You do, you, do have to, you do have to pay for the Uber ride over, over to 110 Grill. But Yes, yes, yes. Jokes aside, though, jokes aside, um, at the same time, Syracuse's player is doing what he can with what he has available. And I do not think Syracuse needs an NIL collective yet. The big and operative word there is yet because the legality of these things are still questionable. They're still getting fleshed out by the NCAA. You know that someone is going to go overboard with what they do with an NIL collective. And it feels a little bit like a house of cards. Like as soon as that happens, the NCAA is going to come in with things with rules and things like that. I just don't think that, we can be comfortable enough with what is essentially NIL lobbying. It doesn't feel totally clean yet. It doesn't feel normal enough for me to condone Syracuse doing it, especially for Syracuse athletics that has gone through scandals before Syracuse basketball missed the tournament early nineties. They had some recruiting stuff going on. You had the fab mellow YMCA saga with Jim Bayheim. Syracuse football got tangled up in some stuff during the Greg Robinson era late Paul Pasqualoni, where they have some winless seasons, according to the NCAA, where they vacated 
the only few wins they had at a couple of those seasons. And then earlier in the 2010s, you had another basketball scandal as well, where SU stepped out of the March Madness tournament on their own accord, trying to cooperate with that. So Syracuse Athletics as a history, they've had some things go on like that before where they didn't think they were doing anything wrong, but then it comes out, oh, you were doing something wrong and you might've known about it, but we'll never truly know. At the same time with an NIL collective, I just don't know, Cam. It just, it feels kind of seedy to me. Something about it just isn't right. So I can tolerate kind of the funny visual of Sean Tucker, you know, holding up his, uh, his 110 grill meals as other ACC football players get to drive around in their BMWs. But if it comes to that, if it comes to smaller time deals for the sake of being right and being legal, you want to take that 10 times out of 10, especially with Syracuse athletics. These teams aren't doing well. John Wildhack's having to answer questions, not only about why the teams are bad, but also why these players aren't getting better NIL deals. There's a lot on Syracuse's plate right now. They don't need a collective. They could use better NIL deals, but those will come with time as the teams and the players improve. 100%. I agree with you. Uh, Last thing I want to say is, you know, Syracuse is known for uh, it's family-owned businesses, right, and how local everything is. So it's less about your large industries and more about, you know, businesses that have been owned for the last 90 to 100 years by one specific family. So I understand why the money's not a lot. I just think Syracuse has to do them. And, and I'm being proved wrong by the basketball team. They just got six recruits, right? If I think NIL is bad in Syracuse, then why would six recruits come in a given class? So I could be proved wrong. I understand what you're saying. I just think that Syracuse needs to kind of jump on the bandwagon early because if not, they're going to fall behind the eight ball. Right. And, and whether you like it or not, NIL is a part of college sports these days. It's part of recruiting. Syracuse is going to write its own history with NIL by the time things are said and done. And and by the time it becomes fully normalized with college athletes who grew up with NIL their whole lives, eventually we'll reach that point. So Syracuse is going to do it its own way. You can like it or not like it, but the reality is they're doing what they think is right. And uh, we're just privy to that. We're witness to that. And our job is to cover the teams and offer our opinions of that. So that wraps things up for this Fizz 5. This has been Carter Bainbridge along with Cam Izzer. We hope you've enjoyed listening. We'll be back in a few weeks on Fizz 5, but of course, this being a weekly series, you can catch the next Fizz 5 around this time next week with some of our talented writers who will take to the airwaves and record something just like this. But for now, Cam and I are going to sign off and we'll see you in a couple weeks. Thank you for listening to this week's Fizz 5. And that's your Fizz 5. Listen next week. Subscribe, rate, and review. This has been an Orange Fizz production.